Good morning, everybody. You're a quiet crowd today. You're very respectful. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to see you all here at Medicine Grand Rounds. Um, I am delighted to be able to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Jonathan Applebaum. His visit with us is um, in collaboration with the New Hampshire chapter of the American College of Physicians. Um, they're having their annual meeting, as you may know, um, just down the road um, at the Hilton Garden Inn today. And um, Dr. Applebaum, Applebaum will be the featured speaker there. Um, he will be speaking there about LGBTQ care for the primary care physician. Um, and several of our faculty will also be lecturing at the conference. Many of our residents and students will be presenting posters. Um, for those of you who have not attended the ACP meeting in the last few years, it is really a lot of fun and it's a great chance to network with not only our colleagues in internal medicine here within the building, but also folks from the community um, and from around the state. So uh, please consider that for today. Actually, I'm sure you, you would be welcome to come and, uh, and do a late registration, um, but for sure for next year if, you, if you're not planning to go today. So with that little plug, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Dr. Applebaum. Uh, he is the Laurie L. Dozier, Jr., MD, Education Director and Professor of Internal Medicine and the Chair of the Department of Clinical Sciences at Florida State University College of Medicine. He's a graduate of the University of Miami School of Medicine and completed his internal medicine residency at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. He held positions at Fenway Community Health and at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston before relocating to Florida. He is both an HIV expert and a geriatrician who has dedicated over 25 years of his career to treating, advocating for, and training others to care for patients with HIV. He chairs the American Academy of HIV Medicine Executive Committee and serves on the board of directors of Health HIV, a national organization that supports advocacy education, capacity building, and research. He served as the co-principal investigator for the HIV and Aging Consensus Project and the co-medical editor for the HIVAge.org website. Dr. Applebaum is a talented and dedicated educator with particular interest in HIV and aging and LGBTQ-related curricula in undergraduate medical education. He serves on the faculty of the Florida State University Tallahassee Memorial Healthcare Internal Medicine Residency Program and lectures broadly on topics related to healthcare for aging LGBT patients. I'm delighted to welcome him today and to talk to us about helping our patients age gracefully, gracefully with HIV. Let me just um, switch over to his slides. See if I'm successful. It just takes a second. Good. Good. Welcome, Dr. Applebaum. And the microphone. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, everybody hear me okay back there? Okay, great. Okay. So um, I'm going to take you through a little bit of a journey um, over the next 45 or 50 minutes, uh, my disclosures. Um, so what we're going to talk about is um, the impact of aging on uh, HIV infection, as well as the impact of HIV infection on aging. So it's a two-way street. Um, I'm going to talk about um, how you approach and assess um, older patients with HIV in a geriatric uh, context. So we're going to be talking about some geriatric syndromes, some of which you may be familiar with, others maybe not, so I'll, I'll, I'll delve into that a little bit. And then I'm going to go through some cases. Uh, my method of teaching tends to be more case-based, so we're going to spend most of the time on cases. 
So, you know, why, why am I here besides the fact that I got invited? Um, the argument is that, um, you know, we have about one and a half, 1.2 million uh, people in the United States are HIV infected. Um, and uh, we have about 38,000 new infections every year, despite all the preventative measures we've been um, trying to undertake. And about a, a fifth of those 38,000 infections occur in people over the age of 50. Um, right now, and I'll show you some data, over half of the uh, uh, people in the United States who are infected with HIV are over the age of 50. And let me just say, not that 50 is old. I just want everyone to be clear of that. I'm north of 50. Um, this is the, where the CDC, way back when HIV first um, was discovered, it's where they sort of drew the line in the sand and they talked about a population under the age of 50 and then a population over the age of 50. From the point of, point of view of a geriatrician, um, we don't consider 50, um, we consider 50 adolescents actually. 65 is uh, sort of the, the, the mark of when you start talking about geriatric syndromes. I have also have some data here about what's what's coming down the pike. So, you know, in, in Europe, uh, projected by 2030, almost three quarters of all patients infected with HIV will be over the age of 50. And uh, here in the United States, you know, over a quarter will be over the age of um, uh, 65 by 2035. And what I hope to build through the next few minutes we're together is that how HIV adds to the comorbidities of aging. So, you know, this is some data. It's actually about five years old. It's from 2015. And you can see, um, I'm going to try to use the pointer here. See. Oh, good. So you can see, you know, uh, in the 50 and above age group, you can see how the, the, the numbers are. are, are <coughs> but I want you to pay attention to this line here, which is the, the 45 to 49 group back in 2015. Now those folks are over the age of 50. So you can see that actually... The, the graph really is shifted to the right, and this is really showing where the HIV population is heading. So I'm going to talk about some geriatric concepts which you may or may not be familiar with. I, I will define them. Uh, multimorbidity, polypharmacy, I think most of us understand, and then the concept of frailty. So we're going to dive into cases. This first case, we're probably going to be spending a lot of time on. The other three cases that I'll talk about, we'll go through rather quickly. So this is a patient, a 63-year-old male. Um, he's got a CD4 count of 450, which is actually pretty good. Um, and his viral load is suppressed, undetectable. He comes in today for a routine visit, doesn't have any specific complaints at all. But he's got quite a problem list. He's got peripheral neuropathy, which may or may not be related to his HIV or perhaps from some of the medications that he was treated with. Hypertension, high, high cholesterol, COPD, diabetes, kind of the laundry list that many of us see in our, in our continuing clinics. Um, he's also got insomnia, chronic low back pain, depression, and uh, CKD stage three. So a bunch of meds. So he's on a single dose HIV regimen, um, one of the preferred combinations. He's on, uh, you know, medications for his uh, hypertension, his high cholesterol, his peripheral neuropathy, diabetes. Uh, he's also on zolpidem for his insomnia, some pain medications, vitamin D, and then treatments for his COPD. Uh, he doesn't work, lives alone, um, remote history of, uh, of crystal meth use, 
And his only complaint today, besides the fact that he's in for polyp, he's got some ankle swelling. Um, I'm giving you his vital signs at bottom. So multimorbidity is a geriatric concept that looks at the fact that older, and this is defined really for older patients, but you can, you can use it to talk about younger patients also, where multiple chronic conditions all interact to actually worsen the health outcomes. We see this more commonly in HIV due to the, the HIV disease, but there may be other things, including lifestyle uh, uh, risk factors, polypharmacy, the fact that even patients with HIV who have suppressed viral loads still have ongoing low levels of inflammation and, and immune activation. Why are we concerned about this? Well, multimorbidity is associated with worse outcomes, particularly increased mortality and increased frailty. <clears throat> and the important thing is that if you focus on just one of the conditions uh, that the patient may have, it's going to impact their entire health. And the quote at the bottom here, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, is really a geriatric way of kind of defining multimorbidity, that dealing with one problem may unleash a whole multitude of issues. And this is just to show you that, in fact, multimorbidity is much more common in patients with HIV. So the graph on the left here is a cohort that's HIV negative. On the right, HIV positive. Red is bad. Um, orange is positive. So you can see that even at, at, at early ages, there are uh, patients who um, have more than one ongoing uh, medical condition. Polypharmacy. So the geriatric definition of polypharmacy, if you look at different sources, people will define it differently, but I think geriatricians say that a patient who takes more than five medications is um, at risk for polypharmacy. Why? Well, the more medications, the more um, probability of drug, drug interactions, drug disease interactions, patient not taking their medication, and of course, adverse drug events. The, the issue with older patients is you really have to take into account um, some of the uh, pharmacology involved with medications, particularly pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So the PK change is actually um, kind of getting back into basic science here. It even affects absorption. I didn't put absorption down, but older patients may have problems with, uh, it, you know, with uh, stomach pH, atrophic gastritis. And if medication is pH dependent, uh, you may have absorption problems. Um, certainly um, elimination because of renal and kidney um, diseases as you age, uh, or renal and, and liver uh, dysfunction as you age. The distribution of the drug uh, will change as the body composition changes with aging. And then the metabolism of the drug, particularly changes in the P450 system, uh, are, are common as you age. The pharmacodynamic changes that we see with aging uh, include increased sensitivity to medications, even at standard doses. So the geriatric mantra for starting medications is to start low and go slow. You start at the lowest dose and you change the dose very gradually. Um, and then um, getting back to our patient here, concern about sedation uh, effects of, of, of some of the medications. 
So what about polypharmacy in patients living with HIV? Um, well, we see here in uh, a study that um, there are higher rates of, of prescription drugs in, in older patients with, um, with HIV. This one study, um, you know, over 90% of patients actually met the definition of polypharmacy. And it makes sense, right, because if we're treating patients for HIV, we're giving them at least two or three additional drugs to what they're already taking. So it doesn't take much in the way of additional prescriptions for them to kind of reach that criteria of polypharmacy. But even if you take away their antiviral drugs, in the second graph, you see that, you know, over almost 75% of this cohort actually met the criteria of, uh, of polypharmacy. And then you can see the risk for drug-drug interactions. We're going to talk about potentially inappropriate medications in the context of this case. Um, so, um, you know, some of the good things about older patients who are HIV infected, we know they tend to take their HIV medications as opposed to younger cohorts of HIV-infected patients, um, and they also have higher rates of viral suppression than younger cohorts. So let's go back to our, our case. Um, it's important, we all know about med reconciliation, right? You know, you have to do that for every patient, every time. Um, so it's really important to confirm all of their medications, including the over-the-counter medications that they're taking. You know, is there an indication for each medication? So a little bit more on the right, you can see that the patient also, because we are asking about over-the-counter medication, takes a lot of supplements. Um, is also taking some over-the-counter non-steroidal and diphenhydramine, uh, probably to help um, with sleep. Um, you have to make sure the dose is appropriate uh, given the patient's liver and kidney function. And are there any potential drug-drug interactions? And then if the patient has any symptoms, could they be related to the fact of the medication that they're taking rather than another condition or the condition that you're seeing them for? And, and this is a very typical prescribing cascade. So a patient has some joint pain, takes a non-steroidal, which in older patients we know can increase salt and water retention, increases blood pressure. So you're prescribing lodipine for the patient lower their blood pressure, which, of course, develops ankle swelling. And you give them a diuretic, which causes hypokalemia. Then you give them potassium, which causes nausea. And so you prescribe an antiemetic. So because of one medication, you've actually prescribed four more medications. Not an uncommon situation. And um, as we see here, um, as patients age, the number of non-antiretroviral therapy medications that the patients are prescribed increases. Again, not, not surprising. So going back to our patient, are there any high-risk medications? So I think um, we'll identify some in a minute. Um, and are there any potential inappropriate medications? So how do you decide whether there are inappropriate medications? Oh, and are there any other medication concerns? And you have to ask the patient, you know, are you having trouble buying your prescriptions? You guys come from a state where, um, you know, no matter how bad things are here, at least New Hampshire expanded Medicaid. I, I come from a state where we didn't expand Medicaid, and many times patients are having problems um, affording medication. So inappropriate medication. So how many folks here know about the beers list? 
everyone should know about the beers list. The beers list is a list of medications that it's actually a list that's um, generated through the American Geriatric Society that um, looks at classes of medications and what are the risks for uh, reactions or adverse events uh, in an elderly population. Um, and so if you, if you look at the list here um, and, the, and the ones that this, this patient is taking, the patient is diphenhydramine, which really should be avoided mostly because of his anticholinergic effect. And then uh, the benzodiazepines, and in, in particular in this patient, the combination of a hypnotic with um, opiates is really a very bad combination. So already we can see in this patient there's a couple of medications that um, he should not be taking. So getting back to our patient, you're, so you ask about net adherence like you should every time, and you discover that actually he's forgetting to take some of his medications. Not surprising with that laundry list of, of meds he's got to take. But then he also tells you that he's having some problems with memory. He's forgetting things. Um, and this has been slowly progressive. Um, even, you know, going to the store and not remembering what he was there for, to, uh, what he was going there to get. So let me ask a question here. HIV-associated neurocognitive disorder is well described. So what do you think? <clears throat> I apologize. This is not in, uh, in the format of an official NDME question. They don't like this format. But um, is the prevalence of hand the same as it was 20 years ago? Um, is the mini mental state exam um, an appropriate screening, a sensitive and appropriate screening tool to assess it? Um, does exercise help manage neurocognitive symptoms? Is it A and C, all of the above, or none of the above? So how many say um, it's A? Okay. How many say it's B? How many say it's C? Okay. How many say it's uh, D, both A and C? Okay. How many say E, none of the above? And all of, uh, I'm sorry, E, all, how many say all of the above? Okay. How many say none of the above? But a nice variety here. Well, the correct answer is A and C. Surprisingly, and this is, this is really surprising, despite all the advances that we've made in the treatment of HIV, the incidence of HIV-associated neurocognitive disorder, as described from very modest <coughs> to frank dementia, has not changed um, in 20 years. Um, with very sensitive tests, um, we're still seeing it. I will tell you that the, that the more severe forms of HIV dementia, we, we don't see as much anymore. It's the milder forms we're still seeing. Um, and I'll, I'll give you some information about exercise. Um, the mini mental status exam, first of all, most of us are not using that anymore because you have to pay for it, okay? Um, and I'll give you some data about um, the, the, what may be a more appropriate screening tool. Um, and the question always comes up is, um, well, is it related to HIV or is it related to um, aging? And this is some data about uh, looking at Alzheimer's versus age-related changes. Um, and, you know, most of the time we spend with older patients, we reassure them that, in fact, it's not dementia. It's normal to have slower processing speed. It takes a little longer to kind of comprehend things. That... Um, despite the fact that we all have to multitask, multitasking does get a little more difficult as you age. Um, I, I certainly find it 
Sometimes I forget names of things. I recognize the face, but I can't remember the name. That's normal aging. Um, and things like vocabulary, you can still continue to learn new things as you age. Um, this uh, on the top, it talks a little bit about the, the different manifestations of uh, HIV-associated neurolo neurological disorders, from the frank dementia to the very mild asymptomatic. That's what we're seeing more of. If you do sophisticated testing on older patients with HIV, you're going to see more of asymptomatic um, uh, neuro, uh, neurologic impairment. Risk factors. Um, well, we know that the central nervous system is somewhat of a sanctuary site for the virus, and early on in infection, the virus does get into the central nervous system. So the longer you've had HIV, that's a risk factor. Um, other things can also play a role here, including history of substance use, comorbidities like hepatitis C, um, and uh, also how long the patient was uh, had viremia and what their CD4 count, what their lowest CD4 count was. So. Um, an initial approach would be to, uh, you know, really get a history of the patient's presentations. Was it gradual or was this more rapid progression? So in our patient's case, it goes back over three years. His main problem is concentration. Think about other comorbidities. Certainly he's at risk for vascular disease, right? He's got hypertension and diabetes. Um, he's also had a history of depression and depression. Severe depression, if it's untreated, it can kind of mimic um, cognitive disorder. So you want to make sure you've screened for depression and, in fact, treated depression if the, if the patient has depression. You want to do a neurologic examination um, and look for anything focal, any signs of Parkinsonian uh, features, um, and doing some basic labs. I've, I've listed a few that are, are kind of standard labs for workup of cognitive uh, dysfunction. His labs were normal. And then the question about whether or not the patient should have some imaging um, and, in fact, uh, whether or not he should have an LP uh, varies. So what about screening tools? Um, we, we still use the mini-COD, which is the, the two-item um, two test, the three-item recall. Make sure the patient understands the three items that it's registered, and then you ask them at some point later to remember those three items. And then the second item on the mini-cog is the clock drawing. Um, and that's a good screening tool. As I mentioned, the MMSE we've kind of abandoned because you have to pay for it now. Um, so we use the MOCA, um, although the MOCA now, um, there is a consideration of, adding, of, of, of charging for that also. And you can see here, for, for cognitive impairment for HIV, it's not a very sensitive test, okay? Even a scale that was developed way back when for severe cases of HIV dementia really only works for severe uh, cases of HIV dementia. So we don't have a great screening tool. But I think most of us uh, will use the MOCA as the, as the basis for screening. There is a difference between the cognitive dysfunction in HIV versus the cognitive function in Alzheimer's disease. HIV is more of a subcortical uh, process. There may be fluctuations, whereas with Alzheimer's, we think it's a slowly progressive disorder. 
Um, there are variations, just like with Alzheimer's, there's mild cognitive, or, or with, um, there is a mild form of cognitive dysfunction, um, and there's also a mild form of cognitive dysfunction with HIV. Um, I put down the MOCA is, is primarily the, the, the tool that we use, and the treatment in, um, in HIV is to, is to drive the viral load as low as possible. Um, now, there's been talk over many years about whether you should look at drugs that seem to penetrate into the, into the central nervous system better than others. Some are more highly concentrated in the central nervous system. That actually has not um, been borne out. I, I have a list on the right. There's a group um, in, uh, in, on the West Coast that has spent years looking at the, um, you know, how different drugs penetrate into the central nervous system and has actually ranked them. But recent data shows that it really doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to make any difference what drug you use. As long as you reduce the viral load, that, will, um, that seems to work. Um, so uh, we want to make sure... We want to avoid medications that may contribute to cognitive dysfunction. Uh, we want to make sure we treat depression, as I mentioned before. And then exercise. So there's lots of data now about exercise. The association of exercise um, and physical activity seems to show less um, neurocognitive decline. Um, and so it's an easy thing to mention uh, to patients. Um, we want to make sure we address any sensory impairments. So if they have hearing uh, or visual disturbances, you want to make sure those are addressed. And always, always, always talk to your patients about advanced care planning. <clears throat> so I want to move on to another geriatric concept, the concept of frailty. Um, and this is a geriatric concept. On the, <coughs> on the right, um, Linda Freed um, from New York has been the kind of the guru on on um, frailty. Um, the concept of frailty has not been validated in HIV, um, and, but we have been using it as a marker in HIV. So the free criteria is you need to have three or more of the following. Weakness, unintended weight loss of greater than 10 pounds, low activity, a slow gait, and uh, fatigue. Some of these are really easy to measure, so you can obviously measure gait. Uh, you can measure strength by grip testing. Uh, you can measure weight, but measurements of, of, of fatigue and activity are a little more difficult. So the question, of course, is what's the relevance to HIV? Um, and the, the VA group um, has been looking at frailty, and I'm going to show you in a little while, um, have actually correlated the freed criteria of frailty with some biomarkers that are much easier to measure. Um, so, again, getting back to frailty in general, geriatric syndrome, one of the many geriatric syndromes, not associated with any specific disease. So you can have frailty with any or many other diseases. But we do know that patients who exhibit frailty have a worse outcome um, because of uh, it's a stress on the body's homeostasis. <clears throat> So this is a recent study that was published in AIDS this year that looked at frailty in patients with um, HIV. A couple of things that kind of panned out from this large study. Uh, depression seems to be associated with frailty. 
So again, getting back what I said before, treating these things may actually help the patient. Women tended to be more likely to be frail. Frailty was occurring at a relatively young age, and I'll show you some other data on that. 60 years old is not very old to exhibit the uh, signs and symptoms of frailty. Um, and um, this is an older study that's looking at, so <coughs> age is along here, and the duration of HIV infection is along uh, this axis. And you can see that the longer you've had HIV and the older you are, the greater the likelihood you're going to exhibit the frailty phenotype. So up to 13% of patients with HIV, of, of having, having had HIV more than eight years, who were older than 55, actually showed evidence of frailty. Uh, and the, there was a control group, and they had the HIV group um, had ninth-fold uh, higher risk than their age matched control. So a huge difference. So it is something that we need to pay attention to. And I kind of like the schema. This is uh, Amy Justice from the uh, West Haven VA who has spent a lot of time looking at this. And this is her theory as to what's going on with our HIV-infected patients. So you have a multitude of pre-existing conditions, multimorbidity, including HIV, but other things including maybe substance abuse, maybe comorbid conditions like hepatitis. And what this contributes to is a cascade of ongoing changes in, in physiology. Uh, immune uh, senescence is occurring as patients are getting older, we know that. Um, people have looked at microbial translocation, which uh, um, can be seen in HIV. Um, there is, uh, a, a, as I mentioned before, even with treatment, Patients infected with HIV have ongoing low-level inflammation. There may be issues and toxicity related to the medications that we're using to treat HIV, oxidative stress, and then a list of um, non-HIV-associated comorbidities. All of these together actually cause a decrease in the reserve of multiple organs, and it leads to these advanced clinical conditions, including organ failure and maybe some of the cognitive decline, and ultimately increases mortality. So I think it's a nice theory that kind of um, aligns a lot of what we've seen in our older patients with HIV. So another thing that uh, Dr. Justice has come up with is this VAX index, stands for the VA Cohort Study Index. So this is the this is the index that looks at a number of biomarkers. And this correlates really well with um, morbidity and mortality from HIV. So the higher the VAX index, um, the, uh, the higher the, the likelihood of death and the, 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 um, the increase increases with increasing age. And these are a list of some of the biomarkers that, um, that she's been using and there's actually a website, there's an online calculator, you just plug these in and you can actually get a score. So this may be a better marker for looking at uh, the effects of frailty than trying to measure the free criteria. So the question always comes up is, does HIV itself accelerate the aging process? So a couple of things, uh, patients with HIV, uh, older patients with HIV, um, definitely take more 
non-HIV-related um, medications, if that's a marker for increased aging or not, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, there are studies that show that uh, a younger cohort, 70 to 74-year-old patients uh, infected with HIV, have the same number of comorbidities as an older cohort that's uninfected. Again, pointing maybe to uh, accelerated aging. Um, and that if you look at the, um, the social needs of these patients, they have a higher uh, need for services, home services, meal services, than, um, than a cohort. Whether or not this means that they're actually aging earlier, I don't think the answer is in yet, and I'm not sure what that means anyway. So if, there, if we're having all these issues, let's look about what, who's going to be taking care of these. And I have some interesting data about um, you know, maybe our nursing facilities and, and how they might um, care for these patients. So another recent study looked at, um, at characteristics of patients who were in nursing homes with HIV. <coughs> so number one is that there's been a huge increase um, from a very low number to actually a very higher, num uh, higher number of patients who are now in nursing homes with, uh, with HIV. And um, on, the, on the bottom here, uh, it, it, they, they're ranked by states, so some of the states with higher burden of HIV um, uh, are in green. So my state, Florida, is listed there because we have a um, higher number of patients with HIV. But even low prevalent states um, have had an increase in nursing home uh, patients with HIV. Um, now, this data is about 10 years old, actually between uh, 10 and 20 years old. So back then, it was a younger population that was getting admitted to nursing homes. I think that's changing, and I actually think we're now seeing an older population. Higher rates of dementia, because back then, if you had HIV-associated dementia, that often was the indication for you to go into a nursing home, not the management of multiple comorbidities. So the current projection, based on, on some of this data, is that about 4% about of patients in skilled nursing facilities now are HIV infected. So are they prepared to take care of these? Um, there are some quality concerns. Um, we know that patients who end up in skilled nursing facilities are more likely to be put on psychotropic medications. There are, getting back to what we talked about before about polypharmacy, there's some potential drug-drug interactions with antiretrovirals and the antipsychotics. And unless the staff at the nursing home know, aging with HIV is different. Um, you're more likely to have renal hepatic issues. They, they have a higher likelihood of, of certain cancers. And again, they need to be aware of the chronic ongoing inflammation, the other issues that relate to uh, frailty, trans microbial translocation, immune dysfunction. And then, of course, the big issue is stigma. Um, is our nursing homes prepare culturally to care for patients infected with HIV. So now what about quality? So the same group that looked at the numbers looked at quality measures. And whether or not the, um, I don't know if any of you who, who uh, any of you care for patients with nurse, in nursing homes, but there's a uh, Medicare uh, rating system. Um, there's a star rating system. So the higher number of stars, the better, the quote unquote, the nursing home is the lower number, the worse. Um, so they looked at these patients from that 
previous cohort, and they looked at the nursing homes, the patients tended to be admitted to a lower star rating nursing home. Whether or not that correlates to quality, I don't know. But they looked at other measures. So there, those, those nursing homes had a higher 30-day hospital readmission rate, which is a poor indicator. Um, so maybe there is lower quality of care where these patients are going. So maybe nursing homes aren't prepared, and maybe the quality may not be as good. All right. So I'm going to move on to patient number two. Good. So 59-year-old woman with fatigue, shortness of breath with exertion. Uh, she's been infected for 15 years, hypertension, elevated lipids. She smokes. She uses a little alcohol. Uh, she's on some medications, lisinopril, simvastatin, aspirin. She's on a, 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 a currently preferred regimen, adalutegravir plus TAF, FTC. Has been on other uh, uh, antiretrovirals before. So... Her blood pressure is a little high. Um, she's got some evidence of vascular disease. Um, and her CD4 count is pretty good. Viral load is, is suppressed. Got a mildly elevated creatinine. Cholesterol is certainly not a target. Her LDL is 134. EKG doesn't really show any um, thing of anything specific. And she has evidence of uh, COPD on her chest X-ray. So... She's got a lot of ongoing problems. So the question with her is going to be, is her antiretroviral regimen appropriate? Um, what about her cardiovascular risk? Um, what about other things like managing her lipids, uh, evaluating for cardiovascular disease, modifying other risk factors? So the question here is, is about how do you prioritize all these things? And it's a huge issue in geriatrics because if you look at the um, average list of things that you need to take care of a patient on a 15 or 20 minute visit is, is daunting, we all know. So bottom line, HIV confers elevated uh, cardiovascular risk. There's a really nice uh, article in circulation from July um, that basically confirms everything we've, we've known. Important thing with HIV is that the traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease are still the most important things to, to be aware of. And that the calculators, whether you use the Framingham or the AHA-ACC calculator, it underestimates the cardiovascular risk in our HIV patients. Other things that play into this are co-infection with hepatitis C, whether or not they have lipodystrophy, whether they ever had a low CD4 count or a high viral load, whether or not there was a long delay between infection and treatment, um, and of course, what previous antiretroviral therapy they were treated with. Um, I'm not going to go through this nice little uh, uh, flow chart, but this is from that article that kind of talks about um, ri ri risk stratifying patients to high risk or low risk. But I want to point out on the right here, this really confirms that the traditional risk factors are the most important. So the, uh, the relative uh, cardiovascular risk of HIV is down here in red. But smoking, lipids, diabetes, and hypertension are all much higher than HIV. It's not to minimize that HIV is important, but the other ones are much more important. So if on our patient, um, if, I, if you plug her into the uh, calculator, her 10-year cardiovascular risk is 16.7%. And as I said before, HIV really underestimates her risk. So... You know, she needs to stop smoking. You're probably going to want to put her on a high-intensity statin. 
We want to get a blood pressure under better control. We may want to do cardiovascular evaluation. But I probably wouldn't change your antiretroviral therapy. Um, without going into a lot of detail, the newer uh, and preferred antiretroviral drugs are probably the most cardiovascular friendly that we have. So I would probably leave her drugs alone and worry about the other risk factors first. All right, case three. 72-year-old retired uh, man who has sex with a man. He's been HIV infected for 25 years, moved to Boston to be close to his sister. His partner died 35 years ago, of uh, 35 years, died two years ago. And like many of our patients who were infected way back in the, uh, probably he was infected probably in the late 80s, early 90s, he went through a lot of the previous drugs that we tried. So, you know, monotherapy with a, a nucleoside, dual therapy, the introduction of, uh, of, um, of protease, uh, boosted protease inhibitors, non-nucleoside drugs. So he's been through multiple regimens as the science advances. Now he's on a boosted integrase inhibitor. He's got a number of comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, gout, uh, CKD stage 3. Had a CVA two years ago. He did smoke, drinks occasionally. He, again, has his HIV is under good control. He has no viremia. He lives in a duplex. Sister lives right above him. Well, what does he come in? Well, his concerns are he had this CVA two years ago. It really is limiting his ability to walk. He has a mild left hemiparesis, and he has some forgetfulness. And I kind of listed his, his labs uh, really are... Um, you know, nothing really remarkable. He does have some osteoporosis, um, lots of problems, and um, his list of medications is there. So there are other geriatric syndromes that we haven't talked about. Um, so this was a study from San Francisco of, of a uh, geriatric HIV clinic. Yeah, San Francisco has a geriatric HIV clinic. Um, 155 patients, all over the age of 50, all <coughs> completely controlled HIV. And if you look here at the incidence of, of geriatric syndromes, you know, a quarter of them had had falls. A quarter of them had urinary incontinence. 56% of them actually had some signs of frailty, free frailty, and 14% actually met the criteria for frailty. And you can see many of them had problems uh, doing uh, activities of daily living. And another study, this is from France, um, actually divided the geriatric population into the younger old and the older old. Younger old is 50 to 75, older old was 75 and older. And the older you are, of course, the greater the number of comorbidities you would have and the greater likelihood of geriatric syndromes. Polypharmacy, again, in this age group, is going to increase the risk of falls, a geriatric syndrome. So you can kind of see the link between different geriatric syndromes. And I would link polypharmacy to falls. <clears throat> so what about genes? Um, well, um, I would switch him to a non-boosted ART because of potential drug-drug interactions with the boosted <coughs> agent. It'll also help reduce his lipids, reduce any GI side effects may help his metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, 
and we can probably get that all in a single tablet, so it'll increase the number of medications he has to take. Important because of his instability, his hemiparesis, you need to be aware of things like false prevention. I think he'd be a good candidate to get into some physical therapy. Um, and he's got osteoporosis or osteopenia, so we need that needs to be addressed. Um, and uh, if you're going to put him on calcium, be aware of drug-drug interactions. The integrase inhibitors should not be given at the same time as you give a calcium uh, supplement because of potential drug-drug interaction. Um, he, you know, he might need some counseling. And then an evaluation of this forgetfulness. Is it related to his alcohol intake? Um, you know, is it related to something else going on with, uh, with a, a geriatric syndrome? And then we also have to be aware of the non-HIV issues of, of support, uh, whether or not his sister who lives above him, above him might be suffering from caregiver burden. As a, as a primary care provider collaborating with all the other specialists that he's going to be working with, making sure he has adequate transportation, and he might be a candidate, actually, for a comprehensive geriatric consult. <clears throat> By the way, his uh, CT scan showed uh, that he didn't have anything focal going on, he, just the old CBA. He declined to work up for his uh, forgetfulness. He, he did some um, lab testing, TSH and B12 were normal. His testosterone was a bit low, and so he was started on replacement, and that seemed to improve his mood. Um, and his PHQ-9 was uh, within the low normal range. So, I mean, I think one thing I like is the fact that um, if you treat one older patient with HIV, you treat one older patient with HIV, that it's a heterogeneous group. <clears throat> okay, our last patient, uh, Miss Dottie, 77-year-old with HIV for 20 years. Again, viremia controlled. She's got history of depression, and she is hepatitis C infected. Again, um, had been on multiple antiretroviral regimens, now is on a great combination, dolutegravir, tenofovir, and tricitabine, again, a preferred regimen. She's widowed, lives alone, has family around. So, question for you. Should she be screened for osteoporosis? Yes, no, or don't know? How many say yes? How many say no? How many say I don't know? Okay. Good, you're honest. <laughs> All right, uh, so here's the rest of the story. In January, see, there's an ice storm, right? I think you can see what's coming, right? <laughs> he falls and breaks multiple bones. Okay, so important. I, this is data on men. I didn't have the uh, female data, but it's, it's, it's remarkably <clears throat> similar. So it doesn't matter what age. So the HIV infected is sort of the lighter gray, and the, the um, darker gray is, a, is the non-infected cohort. It really doesn't matter what age, bone mineral density is lower, and as you get above 50, it, the spread increases. Um, and this is a multivariate analysis, so taking everything into consideration, it still pans out. And there's a 38% increase in fracture rate among HIV-infected men. You guys know about the FRAX tool? Okay, we all use the FRAX tool. Well, it doesn't work so well in HIV-infected patients. Um, it, just like the Framingham and AHA, ACC for cardiovascular risk, it underestimates the 
fracture risk in HIV-infected patients. Even if you use this little box here for secondary osteoporosis, it still underestimates the fracture risk. <clears throat> so because of that, this is a listing of various um, guidelines organizations. So if you look at the uh, IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society, and the HIV um, Medical Association, they recommend that you screen all postmenopausal women and men over the age of 50 for osteoporosis. <clears throat> that um, it, the treatment is going to be the same. You know, bifos bisphosphonates work uh, just as well in HIV-infected patients as in, un in uninfected patients. And that you probably ought to be avoiding certain drugs that we know tend to increase the risk of osteopenia. And finally, a little bit about preventive care. Should it be different for older patients uh, who are infected with HIV? Um, I, think, I think we need to be kind of rational and, uh, again, setting priorities. Smoking cessation is, is probably the key for COPD. Assessing the risk, as we talked about, but realizing that it, their cardiovascular risk is underestimated if, with the um, current uh, risk scores. Maybe we should be using aspirin at a younger age. We talked about uh, DEXA scanning, um, screening patients with a MOCA. Um, and I, I didn't talk about anal cancer, but there are recommendations about screening for anal cancer um, in, in younger populations. So finally, if you're going to prescribe anything, it's exercise. And we kind of say about a lot of things, but it kind of checks all the boxes there. Um, and may, may help keep our younger patients, our older patients younger. And then, um, I love this cartoon. You know, what fits in your busy schedule better? Exercise an hour a day or being dead 24 hours a day? <laughs> so, uh, the, the, finally, the CDC and Geriatrics Society recommendation for exercise for older adults, 150 minutes of moderate aerobic act activity um, a week. Um, and not at once, but throughout the week. So getting, telling patients to get up and walk, park the car further away, you know, take a bathroom break after each commercial on TV. So getting up is, 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 is important. So in summary, our, whether you like it or not, our patients living with HIV are increasing. And whether you're, you take care of HIV-infected patients or have a, a primary care practice, you're going to be seeing patients, older patients with HIV. Um, you know, clinical care offers some challenges, unique, I think. I think prevention is key, and, um, you know, going back to guidelines. There are guidelines out there to help guide the, the approach and treatment of patients with HIV. The Department of Health and Human Services, CDC, the American Geriatric Society, even put down the American Academy of HIV Medicine has guidelines that are on the website. I think it's on my next slide. Get it right there. Recommended treatment strategies for clinicians managing older patients with HIV. <coughs> so, um, I want to thank Meredith Green and Victor Valcor for letting me use their slides, Act HIV for, again, some of the material, and then Prime Education. And to remind you, Monday is National Internal Medicine Day. <coughs> you haven't been reminded. Hey, questions? Have you done any work to assess whether a person's socioeconomic status 
has an effect on morbidity and mortality in this patients who are HIV positive? That's a great question. Everybody hear that? So about socioeconomic status. Um, I haven't, but there is data out there that would support that that's a lot of the social determinants of health play a huge role, with socioeconomic status being, you know, one that plays a role. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for a great talk, and I really think you did a phenomenal job of characterizing the, the differences between physiological aging and chronological Thank aging uh, in, in this population. Um, question on the frailty uh, yeah. assessment. You're, you're using Freed's frailty uh, measures, which, uh, as, you, as you shared, not quite you know, uh, predictive, say, in this population. Uh, plus, plus difficult to do in the clinic. Right, exactly. <clears throat> Have yeah. you, has there been any literature on uh, Rockwood's frailty index? Uh, you know, because that's more, much more granular, much more administrative. You know, using more EMR type of, you know, you can get capture a lot of that data from EMRs. Yeah, for instance, I, I haven't seen anything whether or not it translates to the HIV infected population. That'd be probably a good study to, to do. Um, I know that a lot of people are finding the VAX as a better indicator because it is. All of those parameters are things you can pull off of the chart. Yeah. 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 Very interesting presentation. The growing reality today is that we have an increasing, uh, increased cases of new HIV in the elderly, starting 50, 60 years of age. When an individual like that comes into your office, uh, how do you see them in terms of all of the scale changes that you're talking about? Uh, uh, are they going from time zero over eight years, as you showed, into progression, or is there a jump up? I'm just wondering what, what's going on. So that's a really good question. Everybody, everybody hear that question? Uh, so newer patients coming in. So I mentioned before, almost a, a fifth of all new infections nowadays are in patients over the age of 50. Um, it it kind of depends on where they are um, in their disease. So are they someone that just recently became infected, or are they someone who has been infected for a while but only recently did they test positive? It does make a difference. Because a lot of those things we talked about, they met the, the duration of viremia, the nadir CD4 count, the, the, uh, you know, the degree of viral um, load, all make a difference. So if they're newly infected, I think they're, um, and, and you get them on treatment and you, and you deal with all the other issues, I, I think their, their, their prognosis and their likely their longevity is, is probably pretty good. Unfortunately, we're still seeing patients who never got tested um, and probably been infected for 15, 20 years, well, maybe 15 years, uh, and then present with either an opportunistic infection or something that leads someone to doing an HIV test. So it does make a difference, the duration of the disease. Not, did I answer your question? Well, if you have a newly infected person, say 55, mm -hmm. where are they on the scale of, let's say, fragility? I mean, you showed two profiles yeah. as, as an example, yeah. one aging, non-HIV right. infected, the other HIV infected. Is there a jump up, or is it just a very I think it's a gradual. I think it's, it's a gradual. Because those people, you're going to, I mean, the current guidelines are anyone gets diagnosed as being HIV infected has to go on, should go on treatment. So they're going to get treated. So you're going to be reducing the viremia and raising the C4 count. So I think, and, and, and hopefully reducing the inflammation, although not entirely. So... Theoretically, I think this slope should be high, but it should be gradual. They're not going to have a sudden jump up. Yeah. Thank you very much for a good talk. Um, 
we, what we've seen, I think others around the country have seen, is actually, you said that about 4% of skilled facility patients have HIV. Yeah. We've had trouble at times getting patients into skilled facilities because they don't want to pay the exorbitant HIV medicine prices within sort of the, the DRG codes or whatever they whatever lump sum they get for taking patients. And so is there any sort of effort nationally to sort of work on uh, trying to get meds paid for or uh, work on this issue within the system? I know this happens nationally. Yeah, I, I haven't actually heard that. So I think that um, it probably speaks to a bigger picture. So the whole Medicare Part D thing with the donut hole and you know that those issues, uh, I think probably plays a role. So um, you know it wouldn't it would be the same thing if your, if your patient ended up in a nursing home and it was uh, had rheumatoid arthritis and was on Humira. I mean, again, any of the biologics are going to be really expensive. Nursing homes don't want to pay that. Um, I think with HIV, now, I don't, I, depending on the patient's financial status, whether they would qualify for uh, the drug assistance program, you know, the HIV drug assistance well, program. You've had patients that have to leave the nursing home, pick up their medications, and bring them to the facility. That's you know, crazy. You know, it's crazy. Because the facilities aren't willing to, to yeah, take I, the cost. You know, I don't know, but um, uh, this might be something nationally through the American Academy of HIV Medicine we to deal with. I haven't heard of it, so I don't know whether it's something unique here or whether you're I mean, hearing about it from other people no, across I the country. I saw it on the listservs yeah. things like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it'd be something I'd be happy to, to take forward. I, I hadn't realized it was an issue. Yeah. I have a question. Too. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, as a primary internist, I appreciate this is a great example of um, while our screening tools are have high utility for patients in general, screening tools like the ACH risk calculator, the PREX score, there are some populations where they really don't. And and um, and I'm wondering if in this case there are tools that are being developed that, that really help us better assess risk. So I don't think PREX has changed, but the uh, AHA ACC um, apparently I've been told, although I can't find it, has a calculator that does include something for HIV. I have not found it. I was told that. Um, so I think people are working on um, trying to update some of the risk assessment tools. Yeah. Yeah. Very helpful. Yeah. I think we're almost perfect. Any, any last questions? Okay. Thank you for an excellent talk. Sure. Thank you.